Hello everyone, and welcome to the pilot episode for Addictive History, the show where I, your humble host, Calcium, pick a product that you are most very likely addicted to, and tell you the story of how people have used it to uh, ruin the world, essentially. Uh, today we're going to be starting off with the lifeblood of the British Isles, and the people who live on said Isles, the British and their addiction to tea. So sit back, uh, relax, grab a cup of well, probably something other than tea, and hopefully enjoy, you know, learn something maybe, or at least, you know, please be mildly bemused or something. Anyway, again, enjoy! Now, personally, I believe that, in, that before we can properly tell the story of the British in tea, we first need to begin with the sort of origins of tea as on itself. Now, to begin, we start in the birthplace of tea, ancient China when the possibly mythical founder of Chinese agriculture, Sheng Nong, I dearly hope that's how it's pronounced, poisoned himself by eating leaves and kept going until after about rumouredly 72 attempts, he was supposedly cured by a tea leaf. The word spread of this magical healing leaf, and soon they were putting it into porridge. Then eventually, a few years later, they realised that you could make a nice hot drink out of it, and soon an entire culture emerged out of this green drink, with poetry and art. Then, during the Tang Dynasty, it even became the national drink. And then a few Buddhists took it over to Japan, but during this point it's all kept as green tea, so uh, uh, so we're gonna sort of skip over it, to say the least. So, skipping over a loss of history to the 1600s, yes, we have skipped over quite a bit there, the Dutch are now bringing black tea back to Europe. Black tea is, of course, created by just uh, burning green tea, really. Uh, yeah, it's not really that complicated. Uh, so yes, it's coming back to Europe, and it's becoming very popular with the wealthy elites of Europe, most notably Catherine of Braganza, who was the Queen of England during the, uh, well, in the late 1600s. And due to the fact that she's drinking it, all the other wealthy elites of Britain then have to drink it, and it becomes a sort of court culture thing, which of course then spreads throughout the sort of no the noble circles. And of course, the recently created East India Company, British East India Company, see this and they realise that there's profit to be made. So they decide to uh, break up trade with mainland Europe and go it alone the true British way. Hmm. I got oh, I've got I've got this faintest sensation that sounds familiar, but I just I just can't place it, you know. A bit later on down the line, everyone starts to get a taste for the stuff, from commoners to nobles, and profits for traders start to soar. This, of course, gets the intention of the government, and that can only mean one thing: taxes in order to pay for all the col all, all the colonization we're doing in the name of British civilization which we haven't really... Ah, whatever. Anyway, so they start to tax it by around uh, 25p to the pound on every sale. And uh, this, of course, well, that's converted to modern-day figures, roughly. And, of course, this only has one effect. Everyone starts paying it, and every... No, 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 no. Of course, everyone just turns to the black market. And so the criminal smuggling networks start to soar, start to soar in their profits. And, by, and eventually, by the late 18th century, piracy rates, smuggling networks have all increased, and £7 million of tea is coming into the country via these networks, uh, as well as 
5 million coming in by coming in legally. In total, around 12 million pounds of tea is being consumed by the British at this point, and we're not even at the highest consumption rates in our history. Oh, and of course, uh, not everyone can actually afford, you know, the proper stuff, and even, even once it's been smuggled to get past all those taxes. So, swindlers start adulterating the humble tea leaf by selling people water with a possibly sheep stung in it, or maybe if they're or maybe if you're lucky, a bit of poisonous copper carbonate, which for non-chemists like myself, is uh, essentially uh, putting paint or fertiliser in your tea for that oh-so-true taste. Now, as you can clearly see, this tax was a brilliant idea. So they decided to increase it in order to pay off some debt that had been incurred uh, after beating up the French for seven years, which most people thought was a, you know, fiscally responsible thing to do. Anyway, so the increased taxes means that the price of tea uh, legally skyrockets and, brought, and brings demand crashing down throughout Britain and her colonies, which nearly bankrupts the East India Company at the time. So the Tea Act of 1773 is produced, and gives the East India Company a monopoly on tea sales in the colonies. But, as it mainly affected the American colonies, no one really cares, and everyone lives happily ever after, as the British can now have their tea and drink it too. Nothing ever goes wrong, ever again, next to splendid isolation. Except, uh, turns out something did go wrong. For some unknown reason, Colonists didn't like being forced to buy tea at inflated prices, along with suffering high taxation or something along with it. So they started complaining and whining about something to do with taxation without representation. And then a group called the Sons of Liberty, who, if the name, who, if the name is still used, have probably shown up at a Trump rally or something in recent times, decided to put on red face and dump tea into the waters of Boston Harbour in a completely wasteful move. Then I've got something in my notes about uh, freedom and everything's always justified as long as we do it, and uh, a scene where Mel Gibson impales a specifically English officer with an American flag trying to hide something about himself with patriotism. And uh, suddenly America exists. Ah, drat. Now, the existence of America wasn't great for the British Empire or much of the wider world later on, but again, that'll be hopefully another episode. As now, one of its biggest moneymakers has just upped and left. The British Empire was now suddenly left alone, with no one to finance its tea addiction. Which is a great shame. You see, at this point, still, most of the tea which we were buying still came from China at the time, which meant that we were creating a massive trade deficit in order to have a cuppa in the evening. Uh, the Chinese emperors were still essentially living in the Middle Ages, when China was the leading civilization in the world, and that all these European barbarians could offer was new religion and gold. They hadn't realized that the world had changed, and, uh, now, and now they had actual rivals to compete for the title of global superpower. The Chinese were only accepting gold and silver in return for their products, as they believed that this was all the Europeans could still offer them. But the British master negotiators, as they have, as they are, and have proven in the last few years with the EU, decided that they were going to be the ones to change this, and so set out on a trade mission in 1793, 
later named the McCartney Mission, in which the mighty British Empire would show off its trading merit in textiles, telescopes and clocks, and in return, get a few Chinese ports to do some trading in, with relaxed restrictions of course. Unfortunately, however, this was of course doomed from the get-go. For example, before they even set off, language barriers became a massive problem, as, uh, as at the time, no one outside China was allowed to speak Chinese for some reason, and anyone who taught the language to foreigners was executed. Uh, and of course, we haven't even gotten into the annoying stubbornness and pride on both sides, which would come later on, when they actually got there. For example, for example, the, uh, Chi the Chinese Changlong Emperor wasn't actually in Beijing at the time, and he demanded that the British mission go all the way up to his summer palace, so that before they could even do anything, then McCartney wouldn't bow to a monarch from what he regarded as an inferior nation or some other bollocks, unless a Chinese man of equal rank to him uh, bowed to a picture of King George, which he just carried around with him, you know, as you do. And uh, then, you know, uh, the Chinese emperor just assumed that everything was a gift for him, and he sort of ended it ended it with uh, sending a gift of a letter back to King George III, in which he said, thank you for all the gifts and tribute to me, because I'm such a great guy, but uh, no, trade's working out pretty great for us, so we're not going to change it, to be honest, but uh, maybe if you become my vassal or something, you know, we could, you know, relax it a bit, something like that. Suffice to say, the mission failed, and the British, to put it mildly, were rather annoyed, and they started looking for another way to balance the budget. This is now when they noticed what the Honourable East India Company had been doing. You see, while all this had been going on, the company had been, at great cost, consoli consoli consolidating their hold over the Indian subcontinent, in which they had found a particular product which was said to be very profitable in China. Now, here is where we take a slight detour, because we can't properly talk about the British and tea without uh, talking about what financed that for so long. The uh, infamous drug opium, and selling it via, to smugglers via networks in Calcutta. Now then, uh, now then originally, as mentioned, as mentioned before, it was only the East India Company doing it as, well... Well, well, they claim not to be doing it, but as they weren't directly selling it, but they were selling it to smugglers because that was more, you know, ethical for them than just selling it to, than selling it directly to the Chinese masses. But once it became profitable, the British government decided that in the spirit of free trade, it was unfair to allow one company to have a monopoly on such a heinous on such a heinous uh, market, and so they decided in 1883 to lift the East India Company's uh, rights to the monopoly, and soon tons of traders started getting in on the business. So <laughs> suddenly, the trade suddenly though the trade deficit started to balance, and the Brit <laughs> and uh, maybe the British could have had uh, tea and biscuits after all at the cost of uh, Breaking Bad for a bit and shifting three million pounds of opium into China by 1835. And, of course, that would only continue to grow over time.
especially once the uh, other Western powers noticed how much money could be made and got in on it as well. Most notably the Americans, who sold a poorer quality Turkish opium, but for cheaper, which then drove the price down among the British traders and made opium even more accessible to the masses, leading to a terrible crime leading to terrible crime rates and yeah and addiction rates in China. It became such a problem that the uh, emperor that the emperor decided <laughs> that the emperor decided that something had to be done. So in 1838, he the death penalty was finally applied to drug smugglers, and uh, then in 1839, the brilliant and incorruptible Lin Zhishu again, really hope that's how it's pronounced, was appointed to lead the counterattack on the opium trade. He immediately got to work cracking down on smugglers and forcing addicts into rehab, along with sending a letter to Queen Victoria appealing to her conscience, which she uh, most likely never received being totally honest. Then he was ready to try and tackle the western traders, seizing in uh, 1839 again 20,000 chests of opium, which accounted to around 1.4 tons of the drug, which at the time was uh, the equivalent of uh, a sixth of the British Empire's military budget. The a sixth of the largest military in the world, of the in the world, that's just staggering. Or <laughs> it's ridiculous. But yes, this of course fueled tensions between the West and China, most notably Britain, especially when two British sailors murdered a Chinese citizen, and the British government refused to let it be tried under Chinese law which then led to the expelling of the British from Hong Kong, and then a blockade by the Chinese, which would lead to a British intervention uh, of, into the blockade, and which of course would uh, start the First Opium War, which would then lead into much death and destruction and more opium wars. How fun. Now, this is supposed to be an episode on tea, after all, and I have bit, so I'm going to end this uh, long but necessary detour on the opium, on opium and skip over the specifics of the actual opium war, as well as the consecutive ones, as uh, the main thing that we need to know is that the opium war uh, is, uh, is fuelled by the need for the British Empire to have tea, and the Opium War, of course, leads to the imposition of the unequal treaties, all because we wanted uh, fewer trade restrictions so that we could have more tea. And the uh, unequal treaties, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how many Westerners know of them, but these are fairly infamous in, uh, the, in the East as the symbol of Western oppression. And uh, they've been, and they've, they're basically a massive turning point in Chinese and uh, Japanese history, and uh, they're a great uh, and they're a great uh, and uh, they're a great propaganda piece for the CCCP. And I mean, they kind of helped fuel them as the unequal treaties sort of symbolise sort of the West. They uh, they were, I mean, it's it's in the name for what they did and how just ridiculous these things were uh, and they ha and they helped fuel the sort of anti-western ideas over over 
over in China that and the need and well they also help they helped uh, the Chinese understand the need to modernize and saw the destruction of the Qing Empire, the civil war, the rise of the CCP, and all because the British wanted a national drink. Now that we've finished sort of the uh, story of uh, the British and the Chinese tea, we, get, we need to move back and down south slightly, back to the East India Company and uh, their control over India in the 1830s. Now, when they lost their rights to the monopoly over opium, they needed, once again, another news revenue stream. So they decided, since uh, cotton had failed to really take root in India and they couldn't compete with the Americans, that uh, they would try growing tea in India. And, uh, yeah, it worked out in the end. They took, the tea took, yeah, tea took really well to India. But there was a problem. You see, tea is a very labour-intensive product to grow. And uh, normally, you would have had some good old slave labour to, you know, do all the work for you. But the British had uh, led the world in banning the slave trade in 1833 after helping kick it into high gear a century or two before. So instead, it was time to get creative for the time and think outside the box a bit by uh, paying people slave wages and, and paying thousands, well, and paying thousands practically nothing in essentially what we, what we would think of now as a sort of sweatshop kind of deal. But it, it's not a bad thing, remember. It's the free market. It's just how it works. And uh, yeah, sad thing is, uh, going down the line a bit, briefly, uh, that hasn't really changed. People in uh, these tea plantations have still paid barely nothing. And they're, they're, barely allowed, they're barely getting minimum wage, or even a living wage over there. Because... <laughs> Just corporation, because yeah, yeah, that kind of that that one's on us, like most other things. Oh yeah, one more thing to blame the British for. The success of the uh, new Indian and Sri Lankan tea, it, uh, led to a flood of imports uh, into Britain at the dawn of the twentieth century. Because now and now the price and now the price was driven down even further by all the excess supply. Is and now suddenly the lower classes could drink it, and it took and it took hold of the nation rapidly. Till uh, around again dawn of the twentieth century, around six pounds per person was consumed annually. Tea was now such an integral part of British life that it was even included. In rationing, order, in rationing orders during both wars, being seen as a vital morale-boosting drink for the home and foreign fronts. And uh, then, and, but this, of course, was still sort of loose tea leaves and powders. It wasn't until the Americans finally did something useful and uh, invented the tea bag in the 1970s that we finally got to tea drinking uh, in Britain as we think of it today. And, well, there we have it. The uh, History of Tea and the British, a tale of how a nation's addiction left unchecked and coupled with the birth of modern globalisation, helped birth 
some of the modern powerhouses of the world, and made British the and made the British the largest drug dealers of the twentieth century. Ah, oh, hey, you've uh, made it to the end. Uh, just really want to say thank you for sticking with me for this. Uh, this has been a bit of a ah, uh, this series. Well, I'm hoping it can be a series. I'm trying. I'm doing my best here, but uh, it's it's been in it's a been a uh, it's been a bit of production nightmare. There's I I this this was never going to be episode one really. Uh, I had something completely different planned, but then I lost it due to technical difficulties, and then my original mic got damaged, and I couldn't use the program which I originally wanted, and ah. Uh, it's been a bit of a struggle, so really thank you for staying with me for all this and sticking around to make it to the end. Uh, uh, there should be, if I've managed to figure out how Spotify works, there should be like a Google, te- there should be like a Google Teams or something or a Google Docs, Google Forums, I think it is. Yeah, a Google Forums link for a... Uh, a uh, feedback sheet. I'd really appreciate if you could help me with that, whether you thought I was completely boring, whether you thought I, uh, you know, skipped over a bunch of stuff, uh, whether you can't hear me, I'm being too quiet or something. Just uh, give it a shot, even if you, I mean, or if by some miracle you enjoyed it, just uh, go through it, really help me out. I really want to, you know, get something. This is all bit of a passion project of mine. I'm hoping to get at least two more episodes before my deadline comes. So any feedback quickly before sort of next week. Oh, that's a quite a tight deadline, but I'm hoping that I can still make that. And yeah, just again, thank you. You know, uh, I, I'll probably have set up an Instagram for addictive history with any luck by this point as well. So if I can't get it on Spotify, I'll try and make sure there's a link there. And yeah, uh, yeah, just help me out as much as you can with uh, all sorts of feedback. And again, thank you so much for getting through this. Uh, see you next time, hopefully. Bye. Sorry, uh, one more thing before you go. The uh, Google Forums link should be in the description of the episode. And uh, if you stick around, hopefully for next time, next time will be a uh, Cuban sugar, which I have, which was going to be my original before calamity occurred. So I'm much better prepared for that one. And hopefully, hopefully it'll be better. Anyway, uh, see you then, hopefully. And bye. Enjoy your day or night or whatever. Bye.